There was a popular feminist motto of the late 60s and 70s that went something like this, girls can do anything boys can do, but better. What do you think, is it true? Certainly it's true in our house in some things, but in other things, even though Polly, my wife, is better than I am, we work hard to give me the opportunity and the responsibility to do it because God has put a priority on order in the home, church, and society, not just gifting. God has said clearly in his word that the way he has arranged the world isn't all dependent on skills and capacities, but on calling and obedience. But this is just the problem that we face, I think both as families, as a church, and as a culture. Order in our society is defined by who does what best. We are, in that sense, a meritocracy. It's based on merit. Not what God calls you to do, even if you're not good at it. But the Creator's plan begins with His design. And then you, as His creature, are summoned or called to obey. Lovingly, joyfully, patiently, faithfully, and hopefully. But in society today, instead of this sort of response, but especially in matters pertaining to who we are as human beings and who we are as men and women, male and female, you're being encouraged to question, not obey, to experiment, not to follow faithfully. This is just another version, I think, a modern equivalent of the question that the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? This is nothing short, I believe, and nothing less than a violation of the first commandment of the Decalogue. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and such it is idolatry. Well, how do we solve this problem? The problem of idolatry is, is a little bit of an echo there. Thank you. The problem of idolatry is solved by going to God in his holy word. God wants you to see in his word, particularly in this matter of sex, sexuality, and our created identity, what it means to be made in his image, what it means for you to live with the God-given sex distinctions that he has implanted in the very identity of what it means to be human. And this is what we have before us in this morning's passage. We are now in the fourth sermon in a series on creation, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And the title of my sermon, a little different than what's in the bulletin, is simply, God Made You. And in exploring this, I'm going to ask three questions. God made you. How did he make you? What did he make you? And then a negative version, what didn't he make you? Let's begin by reading the scripture and with prayer. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that it creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the first question that we want to answer from our text this morning is, how did God make you? And it may seem obvious that we don't even need to point it out, but it should be said, God has made you by his word. God spoke and man came into being. 
Now we have a, a slightly more detailed version of this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It's a, it's a zooming in on the creation of the sixth day, this, the sixth day of creation week. It's a different telling. Uh, it's not a, a second creation in that sense. It's um, a perspective on creation, focusing on man rather than on God's six acts of speaking. But here we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God has spoken and it came about. It didn't take him any effort. The speech of God begins as the thought of God, a rational, reasonable, formed, clear thought. And that thought is then expressed in terms of words. God speaks, and his word is effective. It's effectual, so that God doesn't exert any effort, but simply by speaking, it comes to be. I think God wants you to see how awesome his works are all of his works of creation, but especially this work of creating man. The word in Hebrew, by the way, for man is Adam, Adam. It's connected to the Hebrew word for ground, Adamah, because man is made from the dust of the earth. It's also the name, Adam, given to the first Adam, man. And this Adam, this man, is made by God in a wonderful way, simply by God speaking. I also think we need to recognize that everything that what God does in the creation week, day one with light, day two with the expanse, day three with the separation, day four with the creatures, day five, day six with the beast of the earth and man, everything that God does is good. We're not free to question the goodness of God in creation because scripture tells us if we want to be scripture people that what God does is good, including creating man as he did in his image, male and female, in his likeness. We need to remember the goodness of God when we're thinking about what God has done in creating you. He made you. That's my title this morning. It should bring you to worship and praise when you consider God's works, even when you look in the mirror and you see what God has done. Praising God for his amazing and marvelous power. But it shouldn't just bring you to praise, it should also lead you to humility. The fact that God can do this, and you can't, should bring great humility. Listen to how Isaiah puts it, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Notice how the prophet here contrasts human creaturely thinking and doing and being versus divine thinking and doing and being. The visual aid that he uses is creation. If you look up into the heavens and you see how far the sky appears, he said, see how far that is? Well, that's just sort of an analogy to how much higher God is than you, particularly in his thoughts. His ways are mysterious, and that means for creatures, it is for us to accept his ways to ponder them, to marvel at them, to wonder at them, but not to flaunt them and to disobey them. So question one, how did he make you by his word? Question two, what did he make you? Our text tells us if we're going to celebrate and rejoice and be amazed, as, as I'm saying we should be, he made you. If we're going to rejoice in that marvelous truth, then we need to know what did he make? And he made you in his image, the text says. And God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image, 
after our likeness. The first person plural, our, is mentioned twice. It's a reference, I think, to the Trinity. The Father is the one who plans. The Son is the one who speaks. He's the logos, the logic, the word of God. And the Spirit is the one who gives life. Image and likeness are referenced in verse 26 as two ways of saying the same thing. They're slightly different. Image is more specific. It's taken from the world of, um, of ancient, well, when Moses was writing, an, an, an Egyptian image would be a, a three-dimensional statue or, or carved-out representation of a god. But God has no body. He has no image. And so Moses is taking an Egyptian word for an idol and saying, what you think you're doing there, this is what it really is. The God who made heavens and earth, whom you cannot see, who has no body. He, you are made in his image. And then as his likeness is more generic, there's a similarity. So I want you to, I want to unpack this idea of an image in, in a few different ways, three ways. Think of an image as a statue in the round. So a human being does not bear or have the image of God. He or she is the image of God. It's not something that can be erased. You can't get a reverse tattoo for this thing. It's not just in the way that you think. It's not just in the way that you act. It's not just in the way that you feel. It's your whole human person, body and soul. Image, however, is a representation, not an exact copy. Jack Collins calls it a concrete resemblance, picking up on that, the solidity concept of a carved image. You're a solid entity that doesn't exactly, but merely resembles. It's not a facsimile. There are similarities and there are differences. Walke says that an image expresses something, it does not depict it. So some important differences between you and God. God does not have a body. He is spirit. God is neither male nor female, though he is described in Scripture in masculine and sometimes in feminine terms. And God has no beginning. God is not created, and you are. Image, thirdly, means that you represent and rule in the place of the original. Courage says that you're a symbol of his sovereignty. Wherever you go, as a woman, as a man, you are a representative of the great God in heaven. As he created you in his image, he is in heaven, you are on earth. You are to embody and represent the divine qualities and attributes in your life here on earth. You're to to make earth the way that he designed it to make if he were here himself. We're going to talk more about that next week. I think this second point teaches you something important about God. Being made in the image of God says something important about God means that you are made in the image of the entire triune being, the whole God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Somehow or other, everything about him finds some sort of representative expression in you. Our catechism focuses on three qualities that you are made in the image of God that are worth remembering. You are made in the image of God in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness. So being made in the image of God tells you something about God. It also tells you something important about you. Your whole person is in his image. 
As I said previously, you don't have his image, you are his image, not just your soul, but your body, not just your mind, but your heart, not just your thoughts, but your feelings. Nothing is excluded, and there's many aspects about the human person that we could talk about this morning, and it's a deep topic, it's worthy of of your careful study, but I'm going to focus on one important aspect of the image of God this morning. Your human body, your human body images God. Now, as I mentioned, Scripture is clear. John 4, 24, God is a spirit. He has not a body like men. God does not have arms. He does not have fingers. He does not have feet. He does not have a face. Yet all of these words, arms, feet, fingers, face, are used in Scripture to describe God. Now, I happen to think that the, the only way that would work is if he made you in his image. So there's some correspondence, some reflective representational analogy between the fact that you have arms, you have fingers, you have a face, you have feet, and who God is without a body. It's amazing to think that we can understand God who has no body by reference to parts that we have. You're made in his image. Here are some ways that I think I thought about that your body images God. You use your body to worship God, and we need to do better at this, I think, as a congregation. Kneeling, raising your hands in worship and in prayer, folding your hands, bowing your head, closing your eyes, looking up, singing with your voice. We need to get better at this as a church. Using your body, using your body, everything in you, to worship God. You also use your body to fight sin in the world. Sin is not just a mental game. You're not just engaged in in a thought war against Satan. You use your hands, your feet, your eyes. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. So your body is engaged in spiritual warfare. You use your body to learn about God. I mentioned eyes. Your eyes read the scriptures. Your eyes read them. Your ears hear the scripture. Your ears hear me preaching to you this morning. God's will for your life comes through your ears. Open your ears. Listen with your body. And then with your hands and your feet, you do the things that you've heard after you've reflected on them with your brain. Your brain. Monday through Saturday, you do what you have heard with your body, where you go, what you do, what you don't do. And think about the incarnation. God, this is Bavink, God could not have been able to become a man if, he had not, if man had not been first formed in God's image. So our first question is, how did he make you by his word? Second, what did he make you in his image? We could talk a lot more about that, but we need to hasten to the third point this morning. What didn't he make you? This is my negative. Not negative because it's bad. It's actually very good, but I'm wording it in the negative. What did he make you? In his image. What didn't he make you? He didn't make you the same. He didn't make you the same. Now, I know that each and every one of us has a unique fingerprint, a voice print, an eye print that makes us different. But I'm talking about the two great categories of human beings, of Adam, 
They are male Adam and female Adam. We are not the same. The word in our text, as I mentioned, for humans or human beings or man or mankind is Adam. We are all Adams, but some of us are male Adams and some of us are female. And it's either male or female. There isn't a third category here. In God's wisdom, he stipulated and specified that Adam, they, are made male or female. There are no other alternatives and no other options. Two things why I think this is important. One in particular, this is important and you need to know that this is his word, it is his plan. God could have done any number of things and this is what he did. He made both of you in his image, the same as every other human, every human being, every Adam is made in his image. He also made every single human being, either male or female. And because of this, his word, his plan is good. I mentioned this in my first point. The fact that he chose in his wisdom to differentiate the human race, Adam, into two categories. We can and we must say this is good. This is good. Because God chooses specifically two categories of humans to bear his image, male and female, you can and you must assume that he had good reasons for doing so. We'll get into some of those reasons in future weeks in this series, but one of them has to be that it is not good for you to be the same. By, by implication, since he said it was good that you were different, it is, it is required of you to say it is not good for us to be the same. Now, there are some things where it is good for us to be the same. Those fall to the image. It's good for us to be the same in dignity and equality and glory. It's good for us to be the same, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, in baptism, in the sacraments, in access to Christ, there is neither male nor female. It's good for us to be the same. We, both men and women pray to God. Both men and women receive God's blessings. But it is not good for us to be the same as to what he says is our maleness or our femaleness. You are to be different than other atoms of his creation. Other image bearers means that you must be different. You must not fight against these differences. You are to accept the way he has made you. And not just accept it, but to rejoice. I mentioned bearing his image and looking in the mirror and rejoicing. God made me a man. Looking in the mirror and rejoicing. God made me a woman. And insisting on it. Pursuing it. Now, this is not easy. Each of us, starting with myself, even though God has said in his word, it is good for you, Phil, to be a man. It's not easy. It's an act, it's a decision, it's a determination. We know in our bones what God wants us to be. We know in our, in our brains, in our souls, in our consciences, and yet we fight against who he made us to be. And society is not making it any easier. With phrases like toxic masculinity, which seems to cover anything that happens to be politically incorrect at the moment. 
and the anarchy and chaos that is surrounding questions of being male or female. Now, this is a whole, this is a whole library of information that we could cover this morning, but I need to focus on one specific point where society is going wrong, and that is on this matter of transgenderism and gender dysphoria. I'm going to mention both of these briefly. Gender dysphoria is the first struggle I want to mention, and this calls for Christian compassion. Not knowing whether you are male or female at some level, being confused about who you are as man, as woman, as male, as female. No one knows what causes it, and there are various reflections or expressions of it. We do know as Christians that God didn't make you this way. Everything that God makes is good. He didn't make you to be confused about something so basic to your created identity as an Adam, as an image bearer. This is the result of sin, of the fall. It may be the result of your own sin. It may be the result of others. It may be no one that we can point to. But it isn't part of his plan, though your struggle may be very real. And our response for those who struggle with this is compassion and clarity. Compassion recognizes that these are difficult burdens to carry for anyone. But clarity means we will not endorse a worldly notion of gender fluidity and mishandle the Bible when it comes to this issue as we try to help people find God's best plan and path for their life. I'm going to return to that at the end of my message this morning. So gender dysphoria calls for Christian compassion. Transgenderism, however, calls for Christian resistance. This is another struggle related to being made male and female. Transgenderism takes gender confusion and enshrines it with specific, disobedient, sinful behaviors that modify, in some cases permanently, the way that God has made you to be. Two should be mentioned here. Trans behavior. Trans behavior is the sin of acting like, or dressing like, or pretending to be, or thinking like a member of the opposite sex. Or acting like, or thinking like you have no sex at all. The second trans sin is trans surgery. Trans surgery is the sin of mutilating your body in a way that destroys your God-given sex so that your body parts no longer look like they were intended to look, but they look different. This in spite of the fact that no matter how much surgery or how many hormones that you take, every single cell in your body will forever until the day you die and in the resurrection be marked as either male or female. No amount of surgery or chemicals can change that. Both of these, I believe, are sin. Now, there's no doubt that we have a lot to learn about this as a church. And I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm certainly not a doctor. But I am a pastor. We have to learn how to care for people, to love people, and interact with people who are made in his image, image bearers, as we've already learned, members of Adam, who either struggle with gender confusion or who have sinned in some sort of transgender way. But there is a biblical debate that we need to have as leaders, as families, as a church, as citizens. How do you talk about such people? How do you refer to them even? Should you be open to accommodating as much as possible to the transgender person's terms of identification, for instance, 
while not affirming the sin of transgenderism? Or should you draw a firm line and be a nonconformist in this matter and refuse to lie to them and to yourself and to God that this person says he is a woman when in fact he is a man? I'm guessing that not all of us will come down on the same place in this matter of how we interact with and witness to and work out our salvation and ministry on these things. But whatever position you adopt or we adopt as a church, here are some biblical principles to keep in mind. Number one, we will at all, ta- all times maintain a clear biblical stance about the purpose and plan of God and making men and women both in his image. And that is not an option. And we're not just going to do that on paper or in the pulpit, but we're going to do it in the way that we live. And we're not going to be afraid of the consequences of being faithful in this matter either, even if the stigma of being a biblical Christian is going to cost us dearly. But we will also seek to genuinely share Christ with people who are different from us and creatively and biblically think about the principles of Scripture. And as we hold to this clear line of what is and isn't right in the sight of God, we're going to recognize that some of us may be called to work out our salvation in different ways, and there we will agree to disagree. This is especially important as we model biblical and redeemed masculinity and femininity. And I want to give you a a phrase that will help you know what I mean by this. Modeling redeemed masculinity. It's in French. We're going to have a French lesson this morning, okay? The, The phrase is, vive la différence. Why don't we say that together? Vive la différence. It means in French, let the differences live, or exalt the differences, or praise God for the differences. Redeemed biblical masculinity and femininity means that we're celebrating the way that God has made us. We are both Adams. We are both men, human beings, mankind. But there is a, a, a male Adam, if I may say this, and a female Adam. There is a male human and a female human, and Scripture urges you all through its pages to exploit these differences, to pursue these differences, to underline these differences, express them. His word, his plan, means that you not only have to accept the differences that God has given, your birth or natal sex assignment, vive la différence means you you get to explore them, you get to be creative about them, and we're not all going to look the same, that's part of the beauty Within the parameters of biblical femininity and masculinity, we're all going to look different. His word, his plan, means you're not going to say with the serpent, did God really say, let us make man in our image, male and female. Vive la différence says to the Lord, God, since you made man male and female, how can I maximize the good distinctions which you have seen fit to create? Before I conclude this morning, I want to address an objection that some of you might be thinking about or have heard before, isn't the idea that sex, sexual expression, gender identity, aren't these just culturally defined ideas? For instance, in some women, in some cultures we find women walk around without any shirts on, topless, and it's perfectly acceptable in certain cultures. In other cultures, men at times will wear skirts. How do we explain that? How do we relate to that biblically? It's very true that as you go across cultures, you see different expressions of sex and sexuality. 
And so these, these mores, these standards, these ethics, if you will, of, of maleness and femaleness are quite diverse as you travel around the world from Africa to Australia to Europe to Asia and South America and North America. I believe some of this is due to the, due to the beautiful diversity of God's created world, that, that we have many tribes and many nations and many languages that will gather around the throne and many understandings of what maleness and femaleness look like. But I also believe that some of this diversity is due to the fall of man and to sinful tendencies that people have, our tendency towards idolatry. And so that in any and every culture, we're to, to be students of the scripture and we're to read through the culture's stories and understand them. Where does this culture closely align with God's story? And that we must celebrate and that we must affirm. But where does this culture go, go away from God's story? And that we must resist, that we must correct. And it starts with our own culture. This is certainly a nation with a Christian heritage, but we are certainly not in every way a Christian country or a Christian society. So I'm asking you to live in this culture in a way that realizes that God has made you in his image and he's made you male and female in ways that are intelligible, recognizable, comprehensible, for this society and to do so as distinctively Christian. Before I close, I want to read a passage of scripture from the New Testament. I began with warning about the danger of idolatry. This passage in Romans chapter one, I'd like you to turn there with me, talks about God making the world in an orderly way. There's a created order in the world and the idolatry of men and women, specifically with our bodies, this passage talks about, and with our sex and sexuality, this passage talks about, with our bodies and with our sex, we have become idolaters. Romans chapter 1. As I read it, please notice those references in this passage to idolatry, to the body, and to sex. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. In conclusion, how can you apply this morning's message? I said my title. It's also my, my hope that you take away. God made you. I want to end with three encouragements. One, God made you. He did so by his powerful yet mysterious word. But because of sin, there are things about your sex, your sexual identity, your being an image bearer of God that you may never fully understand. They may never be fully corrected in this life. In fact, I can assure you, all your life you will struggle with what it means to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. Still, the Lord's grace and mercy in Christ on the cross was given so that in our struggle with such basic questions, we know that he is with us. He is empowering us and enabling us to be restored to the image which he has represented as the incarnate Lord. Two, God made you. He made you in his image. You were called to represent him. You're a symbol of his sovereignty, I said. But this isn't just in your mind. It's your body. It's your whole body which images God. Your body and soul is an image of God. He chose the package. It isn't just a shell. It is holy. Your body is holy. You cannot change it without risking a deep violation of his good, wise, created plan and pattern for your life and for the world. Pray to God that he would help you to accept the body that he gave you, the the gender, the sex that he gave you, and that he would guide you in living that out faithfully this week, honoring God with your body. Three, God made you. You are either a man or a woman. You are either a boy or a girl. Since that's the case, you must prayerfully accept the way that he's made you. If this is hard, or if you're sinning in this way, or struggling secretly or openly, Cry out to the Lord, look to Christ, ask for help. He will hear the cry of every repentant sinner, no matter how badly you've fallen off the path of his blessing, no matter how many things you've done, no matter how much surgery you've had or hormones that you've taken. God allows U-turns on the path of life. Embrace the shed blood of Christ, which cleanses not only your guilt, but your shame. Embrace his resurrection, which empowers you to live the way that he made you to live in the beginning and and better than Adam, because the resurrection in the new Adam means you can never fall. Not finally. Embrace Christ, the whole Christ, who died on the cross in his body, offered up for your sinful body, that you might be holy, righteous, renewed in the knowledge of God as a woman or as a man in your bodies and in your minds to the glory of God. Let us pray. Lord, as we conclude this morning, I pray that you will be pleased with your word that has been preached. That you will help us as individuals who struggle, all of us at some level struggle with who we are. We struggle with stereotypes. We struggle with our cultural expectations. We struggle to know what you have called us to be, where you have called us to go. But Lord, may this struggle, may our wrestling not blur the lines of what is so clearly laid down in Scripture. And may we not just talk about truth in these things, but may we embody it, may we live it in our lives, in our homes, in the way we speak to each other, in the way that we care for one another, in the way 
that we carry ourselves and what we do and don't do with our bodies. Thank you for your good creation. Thank you for each and every person, every image bearer who's hearing this message this morning. I pray that there would be hope and healing where needed, strength and conviction where needed. listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.